Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And this week on the show, we've got Dr. Casey Call back for a second week to talk about attachment theory, attachment cycles. Um, and I would say this is you know, among some of the most important content um, that, that we will have in terms of the foundations of understanding uh, how relationships are built. And uh, so I would say Dr. Call's episode last week is, is required listening before you come to this week. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, make sure you do go back and listen to that first as a precursor because she'll explain the whole foundation of what she goes into in more depth today uh, as far as the attachment cycles and what to do with disruptions and that kind of stuff. But uh, she was an incredible guy. We're really, really glad to get to have her on um, as one of the leading authorities in this field and in the study of attachment. And so, uh, you know, this is going to be really, really important, helpful uh, stuff for you. Uh, second, I just want to say thank you to all of you listening and, and to those who um, tuned in last week, who shared the show last week with a friend. Um, we actually charted last week on the Apple Podcast charts, uh, which is a first for us. We're really, really excited about that. And so thanks for sharing it. We've been really intense not to, to put a lot of money into uh, artificially inflating numbers or, or promoting or, um, or or paying for ads to get um, our podcast in different places. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, um, we've done that. Mainly, we just want the show to be uh, a resource for those who are looking for this kind of resource. And so uh, for those of you who have listened to the show, who have shared it with a friend, Thank you. We're so, so grateful. Uh, and that also brings us to the fact that if you've not rated or reviewed us yet on Apple Podcasts, if you don't follow us on Spotify yet, or if you have not uh, done whatever you can do to show support on your particular podcast platform of choice, if you would uh, shoot us a rating and a review, uh, it does really help us to get the podcast into the hands of those uh, who are looking for content like this. And so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Without any further ado, let's get right back into it. We're going to talk attachment cycles, theory, and what to do when, when attachment disrupts with Dr. Casey Call. All right, our guest this week, again, uh, is Dr. Casey Call from uh, TCU. Uh, I'll say a quick pause for a moment. If you missed last week's interview um, or the, the first part of the interview here with Dr. Call, uh, you'll want to go back just to get kind of a base for the for the conversation today. Um, last week in our episode, she talked through um, the the theory of attachment, um, how it was established, her own story of how what drew her to the study of, of attachment to begin with. And then we talked about uh, the attachment uh, cycle and how attachment is built, what happens if it's disrupted. So you should definitely go back and listen to that first, that first part of the conversation before jumping in today. Um, but Dr. Carl, thanks uh, for being back. And um, let's, why don't we jump back in by um, starting to talk through the different attachment styles. And so you mentioned there being three main attachment styles. Um, and why don't we kind of talk through that and how that's assessed and, um, and we'll, we'll go from there. Okay. So when we're talking about infant attachment, um, the gold standard of assessing infant attachment is called the strain situation protocol. And it was developed by Mary Ainsworth. And um, it's a series um, of events between a caregiver and their child that occur in a room. Um, and, and the events are developed or organized in a way to distress the child, to activate their attachment systems. So when we talk about attachment, there are um, kind of four behavioral systems that can be activated. 
Um, one is the attachment behavioral system. And the goal of that, that system is um, to feel safe. And they do that through monitoring their caregiver. So where is my caregiver at? And you'll see this it sometimes with, um, you know, children checking in, right? Looking to see where their caregiver went, getting, getting upset if they leave, things like that. Then we have the fear wariness behavioral system. And that goal is to maintain uh, felt safety by monitoring weirdness. So there's a person I don't know, unfamiliar things. There's a place I don't know. Um, it's, it's that I'm kind of weary of things that aren't comfortable for me yet. And then we have our exploratory behavioral system, which the goal is to master the physical environment. So how does this toy work? Um, what, what happens when I um, step on my dress, which is a video we have that we show sometimes when I'm trying to get up, you know, I fall over. <laughs> How do I walk upstairs? Those kind of things. And then we have our affiliative uh, behavioral system, which is to understand and master our social environment. So when I scream and cry, what happens? When I go up and greet somebody, what's the reaction? So it's learning how to master those social relationships. Um, and so when we're when we're measuring those in the strain situation protocol, we are purposefully dysregulating the, the baby. Um, it's, it's, it's designed for 12 to 18 month olds. And what we're doing is we distress them. First of all, they sit in a room with their caregiver and a stranger comes in. And so that's distressing, right? They're sitting on the floor playing with toys and then the parent or the caregiver starts talking to the stranger. So that makes the, you know, the unusualness a little bit less. And then we have the um, caregiver leave the room and that's where their attachment system, that attachment behavioral system is really activated. Um, if they're used to, in our last episode, we talked about patterns of engagement and rhythms of engagement. So um, we're looking at what does the baby do when they get distressed? And then there's a couple of other episodes. And then eventually what happens is we, um, in this strain situation protocol, we end up leaving the baby in the room by themselves, which is the most distressed. And so what we're looking at is when the caregiver leaves the room and when they come back, what does that reunion look like? And we'll, we'll oftentimes have caregivers say, um, or, you know, students who are learning about this for the first time say, well, doesn't the parent just you know, put on their, their good parenting, <laughs> you know, hat for the day and, and stuff. And we're like, they might not do what they normally do, but we can guarantee that the 12 to 18 month old baby is going to do what they normally do. <laughs> so we, we only are paying attention and observing the baby on yeah. these reunion episodes. So, and we're looking yeah. for, do they seek proximity to their caregiver? Do they go to them if they're distressed? Do they, um, you know, maintain contact until they calm down? Do they actively avoid their caregiver, turn away when they walk in the room? Um, and do they um, resist their caregiver? So if they're, you know, crying and want to be picked up, then do they immediately push away and want to want to be sat back down? So I think there's a couple of really important caveats that we talk about is that all babies have all these behaviors at some point. <laughs> so when you're saying, oh my gosh, my, my baby pushed away from me, that's, that's fine. About that. <laughs> don't freak out. All right, all right. Right. They don't leave. They don't cry when I leave them at, at, at daycare. Well, because maybe you created a safe environment. Maybe yeah. you went there and let them meet the teacher and showed them and prepared <laughs> them. And so when we're talking about the strain situation, it is only, we're only looking at these behaviors within this research protocol. 
So when we, um, we've purposefully distressed them and we want to know how do they calm themselves down, right? Um, and so that's why we're looking at those, those four behaviors. Okay. I'll so, just say as a quick it. little note here for our um, listeners, if this is like super intriguing to you, um, there are lots of good YouTube videos that you can go to and actually watch the strain situation through a research setup. So if you're oh, super curious so about like seeing it visually acted out, <laughs> it is pretty hard to watch. Oof. It is it's it is hard to watch because the babies get distressed. But anyway, yeah. just a little thought if you want to after you're done listening to the episode, of course, hop yeah. on over to YouTube and yeah. Google strain situation. You can find it there. Yeah. So talking about them getting distressed, at any point the caregiver can go in there. They don't have to wait the full amount of time. So if the if the baby is really distressed and the caregiver yeah. doesn't feel comfortable with that, they can go back in at any time. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so when you guys have, so you, you go through that assessment and, and you've kind of gathered your data and then what are you looking for after that? What, what are your, you know, yeah. What are your next steps there? Okay. So, um, I just want everyone, all the parents and caregivers to remember that this is only in the strain situation because these (laughs) behaviors, I I just, I can't stress that enough because I don't want parents feeling guilty. I don't want parents thinking, oh my gosh, my baby doesn't have a secure attachment because I did this, right? I I feel like you're, you are helping the listener regulate right now. You're like, okay, every every parent, take a deep breath, plant your feet, exhale, like it's going to be okay. Also, you are not allowed to set this experiment up at your own house by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're not allowed to diagnose other people's attachment classification. (laughs) Thank you. Which would include your partners and spouses. Like just everybody take a deep breath. Yes. Person in Target who stared at us judgingly the other day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. 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 Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Now that we've given all of those precautionary warnings. (laughs) When we sit down to score the strange situation, we're looking at those two reunion episodes where the caregiver comes back in and the child, um, we see what the child does during those first, you know, 30 seconds or so. And so we're scoring whether they go to them, whether they calm down, whether they uh, want to get proximity, what do they want to maintain contact? Um, do they want to be held? Do they push away? Do they um, avoid their parent when they come in the room? So all those things that we're scoring, it's a two week training to go get, um, um, I guess, to get trained in how to score. And then there's about two years, 18 months to two years of reliability training. So it's not, I mean, it's very uh, nuanced. Um, And so, and then from that, we classify, we score the um, reunion episodes, either secure, anxious, avoidant, or anxious, ambivalent. And then you go back and you watch again and you score for disorganized attachment. So there's a primary classification and then they can have a disorganized attachment on top of that. So when we're talking about um, best case scenario, we're talking about a secure attachment. And that's in typically in a North American non-clinical population, about 60% of a, a typical population in North America that's not clinical, right? Um, and what what a secure attachment looks like is the child gets upset when their caregiver leaves, they stop playing with toys. So I talked a little bit about this. I think in the first episode, we, we can think of attachment as an attention theory also. So where's the baby's attention in a secure relationship or a secure attachment, the baby's attention is exploring when they feel safe, right? 
they're exploring the toys and they're exploring the people and they're trying out new behaviors and they're taking risks and they're doing things because they feel safe, right? They've got that secure base. When a child is distressed, they, in a secure um, attachment, they turn towards their caregiver to help them regulate, okay? So their attention is at on things and exploring when they're safe, and it's on their caregiver when they don't feel safe. So what that looks like in the strained situation is when their caregiver leaves, they stop playing with the toys typically, and they become distressed. And that can look like a lot of different things depending on the child and their age. Um, And then when the caregiver returns, they go to the caregiver for comfort, just like, you know, that attachment cycle we had talked about last week. And so, and because... When they're distressed, they turn to their caregiver. They develop these rhythms of engagement or these patterns of interacting where I'm distressed, I turn to you to help. And I do this until I figure out how to provide comfort. You know, when a a, a two-month-old, if they're bored, there's not much they can do, right? But if you go over and you start playing peekaboo and making faces and stuff, that's how they get their needs met. And then when they're three and they get bored, then they can get a toy themselves, right? So you're, the way that regulation um, develops is that we have to have someone regulate for us first. And that's what happens in those early months. And then we co-regulate. And co-regulation is a long process for many <laughs> behaviors yeah. and many emotions. And it's something that we have to do over and over again to get those build up those neural pathways, you know, right. Until it's automatic. And then we get self-regulation. So Mm. that's what secure attachment looks like. Is there any, any questions there or should I move on? I mean, I feel like I have so many questions about all of this, but yeah, (laughs) now that we have secure attachment set, let's talk about the other, other styles. Okay. So we've got anxious avoidant and anxious avoidant attachment. What it looks like is their attention, the baby's attention, when they feel just safe is towards things and when they feel distressed is towards things. So they might feel upset, but they're not going to turn towards their caregiver for comfort. They're going to turn towards things or themselves for comfort, right? Um, so this might look like a baby, a parent leaves or a caregiver leaves the room and the, the child continues playing with the toys. They don't really pay much attention. Um, and then on the, upon the reunion, um, they actively avoid their parents. So they don't make eye contact. They might not look up. They might continue to play. Um, but the important thing to know about this is their attachment system has been activated and they have the same underlying physiological, physiological, uh, my tongue is tied physiological responses in their body that that secure baby had, they've just learned to, to push it down. So they did a, um, they took the diapers of babies after they, um, they participated in a strain situation and they tested the cortisol in their urine and the babies who were classified as anxious avoidant actually had the highest levels of cortisol. Wow. And cortisol is a a stress hormone, hormone. even though they looked cool, calm and collective, they had the highest wow. rates of cortisol, which always gives me the chills because it just kills me that at 12 months, they've already learned this pattern of, yeah. I have a need, I turn towards things or I stuff it or I deal with it by myself. Man. Yep. 
Yep. Okay, so what- they masked it already. They, yes. I mean, speaking of what we talked about last, ep- we talked about this a little bit last episode of just the beautiful resilience of like yeah. honoring that precious 12 month old's ability to survive in the world yeah. in that situation. I mean, my hope and prayer is that we hear this and we just think our, we are amazing people, like human beings are amazing, and these yeah. babies are strong. And yeah, yeah, that they can mass that at that age is. It's unbelievable. Like it, it just, yeah. Yeah. it is. It just, it amazes me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the, another classification we have is um, anxious ambivalent. And so when we think about attention, we're thinking about when they feel calm or distressed, their attention is at their caregiver because they have had inconsistent care. So sometimes their caregiver is available to meet their needs and sometimes he or she is not. So they want to keep that attention of the caregiver all the time. So they, because okay. they were, they're like, whenever I have a need, I want, I want their attention so I can get it met. Right. Yeah. They don't want to let it go. So what this looks like in a strange situation sometimes is that even when the, um, the caregiver is in the room, maybe they're just at the caregiver, right. And they're not playing with the toys or they're playing really close. And then on the reunion episode, what this looks like is they want to be picked up, but then they push away to be put down. You see this, it's called ambivalence. And so you see this kind of push pull relationship and that's their model of how relationships work, right? It's what they've learned. And so that's, it's their rhythm of engagement, how they engage with this caregiver. And so And then when we talk about disorganized attachment, disorganized attachment, the two that we just discussed, avoidant and ambivalent, there's patterns. So these babies have a strategy when they feel stressed out, right? When they feel overwhelmed, they know what to do. When we talk about disorganized attachment, um, that is what we see in children who don't have any strategies. And so oftentimes... um, the numbers are in children who've been maltreated is about 80 to 85% are disorganized in their attachment Wow! and they don't have a strategy. So what this might look like is um, not being able to calm down where the caregiver's trying everything that they know, right? It could be um, stilling or freezing where it looks like they kind of go out of their body. They yeah. could lose muscle tone. They could um, make, really um, unusual sounds. They might have unusual behaviors like um, walking towards their parent, but their eyes are closed and their arms are back behind them, right? Instead of looking at their parent with their arms in front of them. So it's bizarre things that you might see. Kind of inconsistent um, attempts at, yeah, regulation, man. And and when we look at outcomes, you know, in, in adolescence and adulthood, um, avoid an attachment, ambivalent attachment, insecure attachment. They all have strategies. They all have patterns of organization and, and they're okay. When we look at outcomes for, for babies who are disorganized in their attachment, that's where we see, um, you know, we'll see greater, um, likelihood of psychiatric disorders in adolescence. We'll see more behavioral problems, bizarre, weird behaviors. Like you see them steal something and they lie to you and tell you they didn't, you know, things that that you're like, that just doesn't make sense. That's, that's that. There's not a pattern to it. There's no organization. 
Um, and again, we go back to those survival strategies. When your voice doesn't matter, when you don't feel like you have worth, when you don't feel like you're precious, you you stop using your voice, right? You start using your behaviors to get your needs met as opposed to your words. And so it's, um, it's devastating to see that. But I think mm-hmm. if we want to go to the hopeful piece is that it's never too late to build relationships and to heal relationships. Um, so that's where I like to spend my time thinking <laughs> about it yes. because if not, I'll get very depressed. <laughs> Yeah, I'm there right um, now. A, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on a personal note, I mean, when, you know, my husband and I have shared this through some previous episodes, but, you know, we've, we came to trust-based relational intervention and then therefore empowered to connect out of a place of like deeply desiring hope to support our kiddos in healing some areas of, of disrupted attachment and needing very tangible strategies to do so. And, you know, that was over, well, I guess it's been about a decade now, but I mean, I will just stand in the testimony of there is always hope. I mean, there, but it is, it does have to be intentional. It doesn't just happen by accident. And so even hearing you talk, Dr. Call, I mean, just to be like completely vulnerable on the episode, like my heart's racing and my chest feels a little bit tight and I'm feeling myself clench up because, this is a hard topic. I mean, this is personal and especially for parents who are thinking about um, maybe the attachment style that, or the attachment cycle or rhythm that hasn't been going so well with between them and their child. I mean, if they're struggling in their own family or home right now, or if they are parenting children that came to them outside of a biological way, knowing that those children came into the home with a particular bent towards an attachment style, like, I just want to take a minute before we even go on and make sure that we are saying loud and clear that there is hope or we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. I mean, but we have to be honest about what's really going on so that we can be incredibly intentional about the investment that we need to make to move forward. So it's about the intentionality that comes when you're really honest about, man, maybe I am seeing some of these patterns in my child or in our relationship or whatever. I mean, those where, you know, can you talk a little bit about that hope and how do you move forward if you're starting to think about this for the first time? I think the first step in moving forward is to have some self-awareness about how you were parented and your caregivers and kind of what did you learn from them um, and, and significant relationships along the way. So adolescence, if you, you know, let's say a child comes to you at age two um, and they've had, you know, a horrific experience. There is obviously hope, right? Because I mean, you, you've got all this time, but there's also new research that, that has come out recently that shows that during adolescence, it's a huge time of brain reorganization and growth. And that is another good opportunity to, intervene, right. To have intervention. And so when I think about health, like, how do we move forward? What do we do? I think we have to have self-awareness of how we were parented or who care give, you know, how our caregiving was. We have to think where were those significant relationships throughout our life that have led us to this point in adulthood? Mm 
So was there a counselor that you really connected with? Was there a teacher or a coach or a youth pastor? Or who was it that your grandparent? You know, um, I remember hearing a story about um, a young lady that was in foster care. And she said the moment that her life changed, it was a 30-second conversation. It gives me chills to think about this. Um, She said that her grandmother sat on her bed and told her um, she had had not the best ideal caregiving from her biological mother. And her grandmother said, she said she was sitting on my bed and she said, I want you to know that this is not your fault, that this is coming from, from her. I think she had some addiction issues. And she said, just that one statement was enough for her to think, oh, because all this time she had thought it was, was her fault. So developing that self-awareness of how were, you know, who were those significant relationships? I have my students, um, draw out an attachment. I call it a developmental trajectory. And so we kind of do a timeline of important people in our lives and important relationships. And what did we learn from each one, right? What, if, if I, I'll use myself as an example, I grew up and if you were to give me the strain situation when I was 12 to 18 months, I'm pretty sure I would have been classified as anxious avoidant. Um, I stuffed all my feelings. I still have that tendency to do that. Um, but I've had some really good relationships and I've healed some relationships of people who have taught me what do healthy relationships look like? It's okay to trust people. And so really doing that self-work, I think is the first step and figuring that out. Because then once we figure that out, then we can be, we can be aware of how we're caregiving. We can be aware of how, you know, what, like you said, the intentionality, how are we going to be intentional about addressing hard emotions? So in my house, it was, um, anger was really hard for my parents. They didn't really know what to do with it. And sadness, right. Was also really hard. And so I didn't learn what to do with those emotions you know, yell, scream, you know, like these types of things, but we can be really intentional and say, oh, you know, you talk about the the Dan Siegel Siegel hand model of the brain when we flip our lid. And that's kind of when we start to feel like we're getting dysregulated. And so we can pay attention to, oh, my child is feeling angry. And that really, it, it flips something in me because I don't really know what to do with that. So we can be intentional on saying, what am I going to do when they feel angry? You know what? I just need to be with them. Mm. And I've got to stay regulated. I, my mantra for many, many years as a parent was, it is my job to help you regulate. It is my job to help you regulate. And I would say it 25, 30 times, however many times I needed until I was calm. And everybody's got their own thing. But right. it's like, we've got to pay attention to what are our triggers how did those mm-hmm. get triggered by our children, by our spouses, by our partners? And what are we going to do when that happens? <laughs> because what you've even just hinted on is the babies grow up to be grownups. And then we have our own attachment styles that just sort of morph into attachment styles as adults. So can yeah. you really quickly run us through what the childhood ones, that they we call them something different into adulthood. So maybe can you talk us through that real quick and then we can... Sure. I will do a very quick notes version on this. (laughs) So adult attachment is best assessed through the adult attachment interview. Again, it's a arduous process. Um, And then we classify the written transcripts of that interview. Um, And adult adult attachment classification can be, um, if if a 
I'll just kind of match up the infant with the adult. So a secure infant would be a free autonomous or secure adult. Um, Anxious avoidant infant would be a dismissing adult. Um, A anxious ambivalent baby would be an entangled or preoccupied classification as an adult. And then disorganized, disorganized as an infant would be um, unresolved as an adult. But then there's also one more, which is called earn secure, which is my favorite. Yeah. It means if we didn't have, you know, if we didn't have a caregiver that was warm and consistent, and compassionate, we learn that along the way and we earn our security through additional relationships. And so I think that one is, is the one that brings me a lot of hope. When we think about one thing I'll say, we talked to our parents at, at Empower to Connect a lot about this. Um, when they're doing the adult attachment interview, um, we, we, for me, it's important to just remind parents and that little bit of hope that it, it isn't about how bad your past was. It's about how you're continually making sense of it and sort of integrating it into today. And so I think there's also that piece of hope that we get to move forward in health. We get to move forward towards hope and healing. This isn't about, um, you know, these all these things happened to me in the past and now it's just over. I have no hope of providing an, a place for earned secure attachment to thrive in my family unit. Yeah. That there is always, always, always hope um, no matter what has been part of your story in the past, not to dismiss the importance of the past. Right. Like it does have an impact, but it's not determinate, right? Um, it doesn't determine our future. So could you speak a little bit more to that? How do you, yeah. how do you think about that in terms of attachment or insecurity? Um, when I think about earned security or a secure adult, they don't have to have had a perfect caregiving yeah. experience. Just like you said, yeah. they have to have made sense out of it and have come to terms or acceptance of it. So that means there's not a lot of anger still in there. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got, you know, the, the term that we use in the AI is they've got a coherent narrative. Mm -hmm. So they've got, they've got their story. They know how it was, but they've also got compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, They can bring some humor to it. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they can say, wow, My mom had me, this is my personal experience. My mom had me when she was 18 years old. Oh my goodness. She did such a good job. I can't imagine having a baby when I was 18 year old, you know, 18 years old. So I can't. And, and I think about how she was, how her caregivers were. Right. And so I've got compassion for it. I know like some things weren't perfect, but man, she did a really good job with the tools that she had at the time. And she learned more through the years and, you know, we've talked about it. So it's, it's coming, having a realistic, because another way you can go with the AI and dismissive is idealizing everything and say, Oh, my childhood was great. It was perfect. Like it was a normal childhood, you know, just, and idealize it. So being really honest about how your relationships, um, have kind of helped you to build that internal model and then figuring out, okay, let's have some compassion. That doesn't mean you have to understand, you know, it doesn't mean you have to forgive people. If you've experienced trauma, it doesn't mean any of that just means understanding it, making a coherent narrative out of it. Um, and, and really being honest with yourself about how did that, how did what, you know, the relationships that you had in the past, how did that affect who you are today? That's the short version. <laughs> uh, 
I think about Dr. Purvis would say, you know, can't lead a child to a place of healing if you don't know the way yourself. And so when we think about framing that, that thought in, in the realm of attachment, um, if we, especially for someone who's, you know, maybe parenting through adoption or foster care, and there has been some attachment cycle either created or disturbed apart from you, that we doing the work of making sense of our own past so that we can be available to help our kids make sense of theirs is just incredibly important. Yeah. We talked about lenses earlier and until we have clarity on how, on our past, we're, we're caregiving and parenting and partnering through our, our lens. Right. Mm-hmm. And until we, we have that clarity of, of how we're doing it and why we're doing it and figuring that piece out, um, that we've got blinders on. You know, I, just in case our listeners are feeling like, oh my God, this is so hard. This is a lot. <laughs> They're talking about a lot of heavy stuff. Well, that's true. It's yeah. true. We are. It's heavy. It's not easy. This is not like you wake up one morning and you have your whole entire history making sense. I mean, <laughs> we tell a story in class how, I mean, we've been thinking about this just as a couple for like a decade and I still confuse myself. I'm still like, Tana, what are you doing? And why in the world are you doing that? I mean, there has been one particular little sticky spot that just kept tripping me up in parenting. And like, I was at least mindful enough to know that like, this was not helpful. Like this behavior that I am exuding is not helping myself or this particular child heal like at all. And yet I could not stop doing it. I mean, it was like... (laughs) kept calling my name like hey Tana why don't you this triggers you you want to keep reacting this way and I did over and over and over for years years and I would I would repair and I'd run back and like I'm so sorry I did it again I'm so sorry I did it again and it was not laying the foundation for like this helpful great relational you know beautiful thriving place between the two of us and it took um, a couple of other life events, one being some family, a family component and another being a friend component to happen like simultaneously within the span of about six weeks where I was hearing myself say some things as I was talking about something going on in my family and I hit like, like a sticky spot with a very dear friend and we were processing it that like the light bulbs went off and I saw a pattern of behavior, of being misunderstood. It was like, oh, I get really upset when I'm misunderstood. Oh my goodness gracious. And it was like the light bulb went off and I remembered this happening in childhood. And then it was happening in the present time with the family situation. It was happening in the present time with the friend situation. And it clarified the thing that I was repeatedly doing in this particular sticking spot with one of my kids. And so I just want to be the voice that says this is, there's no easy button here. It's not like one magical aha moment, but it's so worth it because I got to go and do this like significant repair moment, not just apologize again. I'm not saying I haven't done it again since then. I'm not pretending that's not true. Right. But this is, you know, the the child's older now and I got to go and say, hey, I just want to say like, remember all those times I've had to apologize? I finally understand what I was up to. I am so sorry. I mean, and I'm saying it kind of silly now. It was not with a silly voice then. Like I was very much like very humbly apologizing 
but I was doing it with like a depth of understanding that I had hope that I might actually now stop doing it so frequently. And so to me, that's what making sense of my past looks like. And it's going all the way back to some old family patterns. And I was trying to figure it out in this one relationship with a kid. And it took a friend relationship to help me like bring a significant amount of clarity. So there's always hope and it's not easy. I'll, I'll share this story and then we can kind of wrap up after this. Um, I, a friend who's a counselor um, was sharing with me as we were processing through some stuff again from, from childhood. Um, he just said, you know, sometimes we get uh, lasagna and we love it, but there's too much left over. So you put it in the Tupperware and throw it in the back of the fridge and you forget about it. And he said, when you get that lasagna back out, chances are it's going to be tougher to clean out because it's been in there and it started to really grow some roots in that Tupperware. And he said, so sometimes you have to have extra tools or, or a helping, helping hand or helping agent of some type to help get all of that stuff out to be able to use that Tupperware again. Um, and that image has always stuck with me that sometimes I've got some stuff that's making me funky in a way that um, is affecting everybody around me. And it's not everybody around me's fault. Like I've got to go back and figure out where that's coming from and, and be able to do the work around that. And then why is that um, triggering me like, like what you said, Tana. And so um, for all of us who have some Tupperware that needs cleaning out um, and all of us who've got some some behaviors that uh, this thing sometimes it can help build up that compassion that we need to um, to work through with our own uh, with our own kids um, and, and those that we're caring for um, wherever that may be home at your work uh, school wherever um, Dr. Carl thank you so much for joining us today and just just being with us and walking us through all that um, I, I hope you know you're now obligated to come on whenever we ask like just as a uh, you're, you're part of the family now and so um, and so we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on and talk more about this in the future but thank you so much yeah thank you it's been such a um, it's been fun talking to you guys you make you've made me feel really um, at home and comfortable and it's just a good conversation I love talking about attachment so thank you awesome awesome Well, again, great stuff from Dr. Call. And uh, if you are not plugged in uh, following the work of the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU, you should definitely give them a follow uh, and pay attention to Dr. Call's work. Uh, as you just heard, she's brilliant and, and just has uh, done a great job for us of laying out attachment and why it matters. And so I hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, next week on the show, another great guest. Uh, we have nothing but great guests on the show. <laughs> That's what we do. Um, but Robin Goble, uh, who many of you have heard of or know, um, former private practitioner who is now um, developed her own website, series of resources, uh, podcasts, blogs, um, webinars, you name it. Um, but really, really uh, important voice in the world of uh, attachment and trust-based relationships and, um, and all, of the, all, all of the world that, that we are in um, as parents and caregivers and, um, and those who are looking out for kids. And so um, Robin Goebbels is going to come on and talk with us about co-regulation, and um, it is going to be a, a fascinating conversation. So please make sure you tune in next week. Shoot us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers our show, for Tad Jewett, the, mu just, the musician uh, who is playing our music, 
I'm J.D. Wilson, and Tana Ottinger was with us today. And thanks for joining us on another ETC podcast.